Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Bruce Pierce with another episode of my podcast, Women's Healthcare with Dr. Bruce Pierce. Today, I'm very excited because I have a very special guest star, uh, and I'm in her in her office right now. And she is the director of female sexual medicine at the Center for Pelvic Medicine here in uh, Mainline, Philadelphia area, Bryn Mawr, to be more specific. And uh, she's a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Sexual Medicine, and she was named to the executive board of the National Vulvodynia Association. And this is Dr. Susan Kellogg-Spot. Hi, Susan. Hi, Hi. Bruce. How are you, Dr. Pierce? Great to see you. Hi, Dr. Kellogg. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. So, um, So as the great... Salt and Pepper once said, let's talk about sex, shall we? This is your field of expertise, mm-hmm. right? right? Indeed. So tell me about, I'm in your office. Tell me about your office. What is the, uh, what is the Center for Pelvic Medicine all about? Well, we're all about uh, enriching women's sexual lives and helping them with issues related to but not limited to d- disorders of sexual desire, arousal, orgasm, and most importantly, sexual pain. We also see women who want to have uh, counseling with their significant other just to enrich an already good sexual life to make it better. So, Dr. Kellogg, I heard also you are on the Women's Health Advisory Council of Healthy Women's, HealthyWomen.org. Tell me about HealthyWomen.org. Actually, HealthyWomen.org is a wonderful source of information for women for issues that affect them, ranging from pregnancy and lactation to diseases and conditions that affect women to just great information about healthy eating, exercise, lifestyle. And it's available for women right online with no charge at all at HealthyWomen.org. Great. Thanks. So let's get back to your center. And you mentioned the things that you... uh, see and treat. Now, I know as a uh, OBGYN, um, I see these issues on a daily basis. My patients are coming to me every day. Now, are you, I guess, the person to refer to uh, for us regular OBGYNs? Because I will tell you, honestly, you know, we try our best to navigate these issues, but I don't know if we have all the answers, you know, uh, in, um, in our training. So there, it's great to have a resource uh, like yourself where we could uh, have people go to. You know, it's not always not just having the resources. I have to appreciate all that you do. You're a surgeon. You deliver babies. You oh, like, I like do, you. Okay. You do amazing things, <laughs> and you are running 150 miles an hour doing those amazing things. So to be able to devote enough time and energy and expertise just to one issue like sexuality is not always within your purview. I'm happy to do that with and for you because I do sexual medicine all the time. And that's all I do. I don't do routine GYN. I don't do routine urology. And I clearly don't deliver babies either. Uh, I do. But <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but enough, enough about me. So, so um, now how did all this start? Now I, know, now I know, I will give you a background, and I said it before uh, we went on air, that uh, you I've been to many of your lectures, um, and you are nationally, if not internationally, recognized as one of the experts in sexual medicine. Am I correct in that? 
You are. Well, Thank you. That's right. You know, you're 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 always the headliner of what we call the sex conferences uh, we go to. So I'm very the sexual medicine. Oh conferences. yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I'm very uh, ex- honored and excited to be here. So uh, if I'm nervous, you know, humor me. No worries. Uh, you know, so um, now let's start. We're gonna, I want to get touch on all the things we mentioned about uh, the patients you're seeing. Okay. Let's st- let's start with though the the uh, libido issue. I think I think we see that the most in the office. It's probably you know um, low sex drive. Yeah, you're very astute to notice that because it's actually the number one complaint of women of all ages actually when it comes to sexual function. Um, I, I want to point out, though, that some people really believe they have low libido because they are influenced by some the media that surrounds us that, you know, suggests that women are kind of really sexy and sexual and really interested endogenously or, or that it comes from their the inside uh, desire comes just out of nowhere. So let's say you put in a 10-hour day like we both do, and uh, you get home, you're really beat. And what you, what I think about is just having a, maybe a comfortable dinner with my husband, maybe just watching a show or just crashing. But it's not always like, wow, I could really have sex tonight because at, at the end of the day, it's just one more thing for me to do sometimes. Now, having said that, given the right information, the right, given the right, I guess, environment, certainly I would like to be you know, uh, intimate with my partner, but that might be on the weekend when we're on vacation, when I have low stress, when I'm not on call, that's for sure. And so I might mistakenly think that I have low desire because I am not fully interested and invested in sexual play as the initiator of play all the time. So I want to point out that many women who think they have low desire don't, they, they don't really understand that, uh, it's more the desire isn't always initiative in its nature. It can be reactive. So perhaps during those wonderful uh, weekends alone or on vacation, when sex is initiated, I can certainly respond to it. And that is reactive desire as opposed to initiative desire. So I don't go home after 10 hours and go, hey, I'll meet you upstairs. That doesn't happen. And so I think that's really important to understand that low desire really is lack of desire for sexual play under optimal circumstances, on vacation, on the weekend, when you're relaxed, when um, you're feeling harmonious with your partner and not just uh, on an everyday basis. Having said that, there are about 10% of all women have low sexual desire that causes them great distress, even under optimal circumstances. And then it's time for me to get to work to work with them and with their partner sometimes, looking at blood levels, looking at um, motivators for sexual play, looking at comfort with sexual play, and then trying to help optimize their feeling about themselves as a sexual woman, but also um, as a partner. So how do you know the difference? Let's say I'm the patient. How do I know if it, okay, so you're saying maybe if the conditions are optimal and it's still nothing happening, Mm -hmm. then... Mm -hmm. Uh, there could be an issue. Yes, exactly. And it isn't always an initiative issue. I mean, some women are just not comfortable initiating play, even with a partner they've been with for years and years. Uh, but they are really quite responsive when it's initiated by a partner. So that's all That's all well within the realm of normal. So what do you do when there's a discrepancy in the uh, relationship when one partner wants more sex or more sex more often than the other mm-hmm. is that is it is it 
are they really then having the problem or is it just the discrepancy of what they consider uh, normal? And in fact, you, you hit the nail on the head there because sometimes it is just a discrepancy in, in pleasuring. Some people want to go to the gym more than their partner. Some people want to go out to eat more than their partner. So it's natural that you're not always on the same page, really natural. And it's not quite as hard as you think to negotiate a happy medium. So let's give you an example from today, for instance. I saw a woman whose partner would self-reported would like to have sexual play of some sort uh, twice a week, and she herself wanted, thought she would be comfortable with sexual play once a month. Um, her partner said he didn't particularly care for have sexual play during her menses, so now we're down to uh, six times a month, aren't we, right. if you do the math? Correct. And she's uh, at uh, three times a month, if you do the math. So really, we don't have, we're not so far apart, you see. Right, we're not far apart at all. So perhaps we, we, and this is what we did negotiate, actually, that they would have external pleasuring because she didn't want to have intercourse uh-huh. six times a month, but she didn't mind. Uh, a back rub or a, using hands on genitals, but also maybe his hands on her back is what she requested rather than his hands on her clitoris. Right. You, you could um, say so clitoris. I can say clitoris. It's anatomically it. correct. Okay. So we uh, can say vagina too if you need to. All righty. And penis. Okay. I got it. But, no, um, no, you can't say penis. No, just kidding. All right. You could say penis. All right. But not that often. But anyway, so negotiating <laughs> is, is it's really easy, but it's I'm going to tell you it's easier when there's a third party helping out. And that's where, again, we come in and sex med because we sit and very frankly talk about what are your needs, desires. And at the end of the day, I will tell you when the patient with a higher desire is feeling anxious, it's not always for the release known as ejaculation or climax. It's really for the need to know he or she is loved, desired, and wanted. Right, right. Truly. Correct. And so sometimes it's uh, negotiating a little bit more communication about, hey, you know, babe, I missed you today, or it's great to see you tonight, and how about if we just sit next to each other and watch a show and, you know, cuddle up? Sometimes that's enough. It's the the lack of really showing physical intimacy, but not always genital in- intimacy. So, so a, a lot not of what so you, hard. It's not so hard to negotiate. So a lot though. of what you, you're you're a price line negotiator. You're a, mm-hmm. you're I a, am. You're a, you're a I sex am. negotiator. I am. It's well, like buying gonna, a house. You know, we got a seller. We got a buyer. We got to have them get closer together. I will tell you. You know. My experiences are just in the office as the OBGYN in the office. A, usually the woman does not come with her partner. Mm-hmm. I say partner, right? Look mm-hmm. how politically mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. Her partner. So they're alone. Mm-hmm. Um, B, they themselves are a little embarrassed because it's always the last thing they mention as you're leaving the door. Like they came in for the annual and you're about to leave. Every okay, great. Everything's done. Oh, by the way, I have no sex drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Indeed. so they, they mention it last. And it only sometimes it's only when you ask the question, do they mention it at all? Because a lot of times um, I'll see patients. I've been doing this for like 23 years. So I see patients and I, and I, after one of the one of the the sex conferences, mm-hmm. I go. To, I say, so how's your sex life? Mm-hmm. So I, I initiate the conversation. Oh, it's horrible. I don't have any sex drive, and, and it's really mm-hmm. causing. A pr- I said, well, how come you never mentioned that before? Well, you never asked me. So mm-hmm. so asking is a, so those are big barriers. Uh, a, they're alone. B, um, it's a don't ask, don't tell usual policy, and sometimes you need that. And you need the the partner there, mm-hmm. right? You need and you, and you need a negotiator. You really understand the whole picture when the partner's there. So, um, in your world as an OBGYN, I don't know if you can do typically invite partners to come back with the woman so that you can chat in your office. But 
if you don't, or if you're disinclined, or if you just frankly are inclined but don't have the time, then referring to sexual medicine is exactly what should should happen. Number one, the patient thinks you're a rock star because you cared enough to find someone to refer to. Right. And she yeah, feels absolutely. heard. Right. And she feels like you didn't let her down, even though you weren't the one to carry out the, the coaching, if you will. Right. Um, and I think that's something that people that refer don't understand. They think, well, I should be able to do this myself, and I'm going to let my patients down. The opposite is true. They think you're amazing. Oh, well, that's good to know. Because uh, I was about to go, okay, i got to negotiate now. i got to be. <laughs> but, <laughs> if you so, want to do it, go for it. But that takes but... time, right? That takes, it does. It's, it's, it does. It's not easy to fit that in. Uh, with your uh, routine exams right. and checkups, et cetera. So it's great to have a referral source, although not everybody out there has one. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so that's... Let's talk about how to find one, okay? How do, if how you do don't we, mind. That'd be great. Um, so everyone doesn't live next to Philadelphia or New York. And but they so, should. But they should. But uh, if you go to... There's a couple sources you can find. If you want just plain sex therapy, which is just the talk part, not the ability to examine, do you know? You can go to ASECT, that's A-A-S-E-C-T dot org, which is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and therapists there's one referral if you would like someone in sexual medicine it's a great uh, a great thing to do is going to ishwish so that's i s s w s h dot org that stands for the international society for the study of women's sexual health and they have a page uh, find a provider you can put in your zip code and please understand that people are often willing and able to travel to find answers to distressing problems in the sexual domain this week also i saw someone from montreal from toronto from yes from I, michigan I, I told everybody yeah. you're a star yeah I, no but you. i'm not i'm not really it's just that do you know i mean i am whatever I'm, i know what i'm doing but at the end of the day people are willing able and comfortable traveling to uh have their voices heard and have their needs met that was be, my, actually yeah. that was a question i was going to ask um are there is there any resistance by from coming here from the from the male partners, those who have male partners. Sure, sure. But uh, it's different than if you say to a male partner, I want you I want you to go to therapy with me. They think Freud, psychotherapy, right, how right. gross is that, do you right. know? Yes. But with... with what are they, what are they, they want you to have sex? Yeah, yeah. We, no, we don't want people to oh, have sex. Been, but at the end of the day, if, you, if they know that they're coming to enhance uh, the relationship, particularly in the intimacy domain, they actually are quite incented usually. And they have to be told, yes, you don't have to get undressed and you don't have to have sex in front of Dr. Kellogg. But... Um, because yeah. uh, what was we the, just talk honest to goodness did, we just talk and I also examine the females to make sure that she doesn't have an organic dysfunction oh that was that was you brought that up uh, you could go someplace to just talk which is a therapist yes and you then can go to what, sex so, therapy or then, a sec, most people in sex med do therapy as well so if you're in sexual medicine you examine and yes do therapy yes. but mainly it sounds like you're examining the woman. I do. Correct. I do. Uh, there are many um, people in sex med that are licensed. They're urologists, so they're licensed to examine females and males. I am licensed to examine females. Okay. But you, to talk to men. What are you looking for? Um, well, particularly when a woman has a complaint of sexual pain, which, by the way, one in six women do. That's wow. pre-peri, postmenopausal women. That's pretty astounding. It's huge. Um, it's really important to know that women don't ever make that up. They have much more to do with their time than make up pain. But Partners need to know that too. So, um, but anyway, that. having said that, yes. um, what I'm looking for is uh, 
where the pain is located, if she can help me find it. It's very often right at the very opening of the vagina in an area called the vestibule, which is just the, yeah, like I said, the very opening of the vagina. You can see vestibule. Mm-hmm. Where um, she has pain from a condition known as vestibulodynia. That's dynia from the Greek for pain and vestibule for vestibule. It can be caused by lots of different things, but some of the headliners, if you will, are chronic yeast infections, mm-hmm. um, tightness of the muscles underneath the uh, underneath the skin. Those are called the pelvic floor muscles, and they can be inordinately taut and tight from a number of orthopedic conditions. This isn't just a fearful, oh my gosh, goodness, tighten my muscle response. This is well without, outside of her uh, voluntary control. Um, also, another headliner in this domain is uh, having a low estrogen and or estrogen and testosterone state. Now, when you think of that, you think of postmenopausal Menopause, women, right? You right. think, oh, my goodness, you know, she's postmenopausal, her hormones are low. But I want you to think of something that 300 million women have that doesn't involve menopause, and that is they're on the birth control pill. So many times when they're on the birth control pill, even though they're taking hormones, quote, unquote, they're taking hormones that are very low, and they're actually kind of turning off their inside hormones, which are should be robust at age 27, 37, et cetera, but in fact, they're not. And so they're living in the vestibule mm-hmm. and vagina of a much older woman, even though they're quite young themselves. So this is why this this happens at all ages, not just menopausal you got women. It. Mm-hmm. So now, all right. Um, young woman, I'm on the pill, mm-hmm. you know, but not forever. What now, if I'm, if this is doing this to me, what, what, what options do I have? Well, you have lots of options. One is to go, you know, off the birth control pill, but not before you've gotten uh, your hand, a handle on a much a, a really nice reliable option now what a lot of women are doing in this day and age is they're going on larks which is long-acting reversible contraception you might have heard of a morena iud or a paragard iud they're actually quite popular and they've changed so much since the early days of iud use when they were considered kind of dangerous they're really night kind of really not dangerous anymore um, most people are in very very happy with the use of them and that does not affect the hormones the same way that the birth control pill or the birth control patch or the birth control ring does for women. Um, Other people honestly use condoms, especially if their frequency is very low. I mean, imagine taking something in your bloodstream 30 days a month when maybe you have sexual play once a month. So sometimes condoms are just fine, you know, and they and they're they're an option. Um, Other people elect for non-reversible contraception so like tubal ligation things like that if they're in that place in their life so what do you recommend for women so the larks are huge now uh mainly not just for this reason but for their uh convenience um uh, iud's especially so you did not mention uh something called nexplanon Mm -hmm. which is also a lark which is a a progesterone implant mm-hmm. that goes in your bicep or under your, under the skin above your bicep mm-hmm. in your arm, so which lasts for three years. So I think the larks are the main uh, option other than the birth control pill. But it's, I'm interesting. You mentioned the ring, so because sometimes we'll offer the ring as an alternative to the pill because it by you know it bypasses your uh, GI mm-hmm. tract. So, but mm-hmm. you're you're saying ring bad also? Yes, correct. There actually have been several studies looking at the ring because, like you, many OBGYNs think okay, that's a much better option because it's transdermal. 
which means across the skin. It works across the skin. Um, but the truth is it alters the, the hormones enough um, and increases something called sex hormone binding globulin, which is a protein in the blood that binds free testosterone and estrogen, less so than the oral contraceptive pill, but still does bind it. So, uh, no, we don't recommend that. So let's – all right. So um, my thinking cap is on. The things you don't recommend all have estrogen in them. They the, do. The things you do recommend don't, do not have estrogen in them, So, which is the IUDs, mm-hmm. um, the, the Nexplanon, the condoms. Mm-hmm. Zero, so maybe it seems like estrogen may be the bad actor here. Well, you, it certainly might be. That is the thing that actually drives up the sex hormone binding globulin so protein. You would think the more estrogen you would have you increased. You would think that. It's the opposite the of opposite. what most people think. Yeah. Rats. Right. I know. All right. Well, uh, so that's a very teachable moment. So good thanks for know. bringing that up. No problem. So, okay, what now let's go into treatment. Okay, we'll, we'll bounce back to um, libido and get, then get back on uh, uh, pain, on, pain? on okay. sexual pain. Uh, let's, let's talk about treatment. What, what do we do about these things? Yeah, so first of all, other than in negotiating, order, yeah, yeah. Um, the first thing to really understand is that for libido to be treated, there's lots of options, believe it or not, but for libido to be treated, it needs to be distressing. That means it's not just a, oh, yeah, it'd be nicer to have more libido, but I'm really fine. It's like, I am distressed about this. This is affecting my relationship. It's affecting my vision of myself as a woman, et cetera. Right. So one of the things we do to test for that is there's actually um, questionnaires we can give women to look at the level of distress it's causing. So just a caveat there. Right. But let's say that we have a woman that is actually quite distressed at her level of low desire. Um, the first thing I am going to do is talk about the negotiation and talk about right, therapy because right. that's such a wonderful adjuvant or adjunct to even the medicine that we then go on to prescribe. So let's talk about what kind of medicine yes. might that be. Give me a pill. In a premenopausal, <laughs> in a premenopausal woman, we might use something called Addy or Flubanserin. That is the only FDA, excuse me, that is one of two FDA-approved right. drugs now oh, those for very recent. premenopausal women with distressingly low libido. Addy actually works in the brain. Interestingly, it's non-hormonal, which a lot of women really like. Um, they need to take it every day, which eh, not everybody likes. But it works in the brain to increase receptivity to sexual play and decrease the uh, kind of uh, feeling that you, I don't know how to say this, feeling of being sated. You know, when, you, when you're full of, at a meal, let's say you love chocolate cake, okay? And you've had I just do. enough chocolate cake in this particular you know sitting. Me. And I say to you, do you know what, Dr. Pierce, I, I really have more cake I want to feed you. And you're like, I, I, can't, I, ugh, I can't, I can't, I will throw up. I can't do that. Well, that's the condition of being sated, right? right. In that you're full, full of something that ordinarily be just amazing, you know, right. like chocolate cake. Well, that is because there's a sexual satiety, excuse me, a food satiety center in the brain. There is thought to be a sexual satiety center. And what Addy essentially does is decreases that feeling of being full or not needing any. It makes the woman a little bit hungry for sex. But you know what? It doesn't cause her to be hungry for sex with any semi-appropriate partner. She doesn't go to the Acme and go, hi, do you want to have sex to the produce manager? No, that's not happening. She really just feels more. So it doesn't more... make her into a man. No, no. <laughs> no, it does not. that's what you're describing. But it, uh, but, it, but it helps her kind of be more receptive to sexual advances by her partner. And sometimes it helps her be more initiative in her own feeling. But it's really a very subtle and lovely in- drug. It isn't, um, it isn't a tsunami. Let's put it that way. 
Somebody, so. somebody once told me uh, the man's sexual organ is his penis and the woman's sexual organ is her brain. Mm-hmm. So, Indeed. so that kind of fits into that. So, And there's something new, right, uh, other than Addy? Yeah, there is. There's another one that was just FDA approved. Um, it is called brevalanotide or Vilisi. Uh, it is an injection, actually, but a, a subdermal, again, just under the skin, not a deep injection. And that is given uh, episodically, which means before one wants to feel desire, not every single day. Okay. It also works in the brain uh, in an area that increases relaxation and receptivity to sexual stimuli. Um, again, do you believe these things are not hormonal? Isn't that lovely? It's they're lovely. non-addictive. They're non-hormonal. So they're, one is oral and every day. One is episodic and injectable. I will tell you, though, you know, and I'm a conspiracy theorist, of course, that you have to know, is it's very difficult as a physician or provider, I'll say, to prescribe, especially Addy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the only thing that I know I do, and I'm I'm a member of the ISWISH, as mm-hmm. you men- mentioned, so it's one of my uh, areas of uh, interest. Um, but I had to take an online course. I had to get a special number. I mean, I, I didn't... I could prescribe narcotics at the wazoo. I can give you a fentanyl patch right now <laughs> with nothing. But I had to go to a, this course to prescribe Addy mm-hmm. uh, just for to help uh, my patients with a uh, with a desire disorder. Right. What's up with that? So what's up with that is that um, Addie had a bit of a time getting through the FDA, and I don't want to make any political commentary about the American FDA, but perhaps they felt that women would be wanton and like having sex <laughs> in a semi-appropriate way. And so they wanted to make sure that providers really took this very seriously. This wasn't like a a sexy joke. This is legit serious medical condition. And so they asked the providers to become very knowledgeable about how the drug worked before they prescribed it. Well, that's the good part. Um, the other thing that they did is they they subjected the folks um, that make the drug under some pretty scrutinous situations, including an alcohol study. Right. And they found that if um, a select group of women who were in the alcohol study, most of which are men, by the way. That's another story. I heard but, all of them were men. Uh, no, all but in two. St- all but two. All but two. Right. Um, because they couldn't get women to suck down that much alcohol <laughs> and stay, you know, stay upright at first, first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. Now, right. having said that, many people flunked the alcohol study when they mixed alcohol, a ton of alcohol with Addy. They got sick or they passed out and their blood pressure went down. So when Addy first came out, there was this giant warning that you couldn't consume even a drop of alcohol right. when you were on that drug. Right. That curtailed many, many people from taking it. It also curtailed many healthcare providers from providing it or to prescribe it. Correct. Um, the alcohol studies have been redone. And so now the warning is that if you take Addy, you must do so within outside of two hours of the last drink. So let's say you go to dinner with your wife. She's on Addie. She's loving the feeling of being more receptive to you um, or your female partner and also feeling receptive you know, to another female. It's not certainly gender-based, this drug. Um, and so she goes to dinner, has a couple drinks. She needs to be finished by, let's say, 10 because she takes her Addie at midnight before going to bed. So that's how it works right now. Okay. Yeah, I, um, on the flip side, hmm, there was... Uh, none of this for Viagra. Mm-hmm. You're hmm. exactly right. Hmm. 
Makes you want things to make seem. Yeah, like not no alcohol studies, nothing. No yeah. alcohol yeah. studies, yeah. no special number. Yeah. Uh, you know, wanton sex. Semi appropriate. Go for it, guys. All right. Anyway, okay. Yeah. All right. So again, now, no social commentary, but no. I think our I think our listeners can really make some thoughts. Have some thoughts. Oh, by the way, yeah. the injectable does not have an alcohol contraindication either. The Vilesia does not. Okay. I, I have not prescribed the, that yet. Uh, I have, uh, you know, some success with Addy. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a mixture, mm-hmm. but it, it does, some women, it really helps. Could I just say one more thing? It's you really may. important to understand when a woman, or one of our listeners, if you're out there and you're thinking about taking Addy or Vilesi, please know, and I know this sounds silly, but please know that neither of these drugs will, will fix marital problems or relationship problems or self-esteem problems. And so even if, you know, it just won't do that. So maybe what it'll do is help you realize if it doesn't work for you, that maybe you should look a little deeper and a little harder at what is underlying the low desire. And that has helped many of my patients kind of right. backhandedly. Yeah. They've come in and say, Dr. Kellogg, I was on Addy for three months. It didn't work. And then I said, well, what do you think is going on? And right. then we kind of look a little harder and sometimes we see other things. So, Like like little kids, right? Yeah, Taking care like of little kids. little kids or just being completely <laughs> stressed out. or Right. Sometimes they don't like their partner. I'm going to be straight. And some that's, sometimes that's a, a chance to really look at the relationship in a little more deep way. Mm-hmm. 